you are being seated, find your place with me in Mark chapter 13. Mark's gospel chapter number 13, we have a rather lengthy passage to deal with today, so we need to jump right in. I am going to read from the beginning down to verse 23 of Mark chapter 13. You got it? Are you there? All right. Here we go. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 13, As he, that is Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. And many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. And these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on guard, for they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you're going to say. But whatsoever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains." The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, He is there, do not believe Him. For false prophets and false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Well, there are few chapters in the Bible that have caused 
more consternation and greater controversy than Mark chapter number 13. Mark chapter 13, along with its parallel passage in Matthew's gospel chapter 24, are both sources of great debate even among good Bible-believing conservative Christian scholars. There's a lot of variation. There's a lot that uh, we don't have. There's a lot we wish we knew. And sometimes there's filling in the gaps with stuff that really is not very biblical or scriptural at all. Uh, for example, just to highlight what I'm talking about here, there is one school of thought that has a good many prominent disciples and, and, and folk who follow this that, that say Mark chapter 13 is really a historical account for us today because all of the events that Jesus describes in Mark chapter 13 have already taken place. They took place in A.D. 70 when Titus, the Roman general, rode into town and destroyed the entire city and the temple complex and all of those particular things. Yet there's another school of thought that says, No, all of this is still talking about end times. It's talking about last days. And they draw pretty sharp lines and say, You've got to fall in one camp or the other. But now, you have been with me and you have heard the methodologies of Jesus long enough to know that most of the time when you're presented with an either or, what should we do? Turn it into both and. Y'all are so smart. And y'all have really been paying attention and you have got the gospel of Mark. So yes, it's probably not either or, but it's both and. You see, there are elements in this, this, this story or in this chapter that do refer to what took place in A.D. 70, so they are therefore historic. So in order for us to say that this is all prophetic about the end times, about the eschaton, then we really ignore the historical accuracy and the historical fulfillment of some portions of this passage, which is a great mistake. But yet on the other hand, to say that this is all history, it puts us in conflict with the with the obvious prophetic elements in those portions of this text that have not yet been fulfilled. So it's not either or, but it's both and, and it really reflects the nature of biblical prophecy. You see, biblical prophecy in the Old Testament most often had two peaks upon which the writer was focusing. There was one that was to take place immediately it was imminent to be fulfilled. And then there were other elements in that prophecy that were not going to be filled to sometime off out in the future. For example, it's Christmas season, so we know well Isaiah's prophecies of a young maiden or a virgin who will conceive. Well, a lot of that was fulfilled with the birth of Meher Shalel Hashbash, Isaiah's firstborn son, but there are obvious elements and there are descriptions of that one who was to be born of the maiden or young virgin that was not fulfilled in him, that pointed to a greater that was not fulfilled until the birth of Jesus Christ. So you see there's the imminent and then there's the distant. And any photographer will tell you that the most difficult picture to grasp is one in which you are focusing on something that's in the foreground 
and then at the same time on something in the background. It seems almost always in the viewfinder, one of them's going to be clear and one of them's going to be blurry. If you focus on the one that's blurry, then the one that was clear becomes blurry. And that's sort of the nature of biblical prophecy. But I think this falls right in line, and there are elements of this, yes, that are historic. There are other elements that are indeed prophetic. And separating those two elements is kind of the key to understanding uh, this passage and for us to get our arms around it. I think there are even clues within this passage that mitigate towards that. For example, look with me, if you will. There are two uh, pronouns that are used repeatedly here in this, uh, in this chapter. And the, pronoun is, or the pronouns are these and those. Now any grammarian will tell you that these and those are pronouns that are known as near and remote. For example, if I say, y'all come and get some of these gift cards, what does that entail? It entails that they were close to me, right? It's somewhere right around here. But if I say, y'all get some of those gift cards, what does that mean? That means that they are somewhere distant or remote from me. Dr. John has them at the welcome table in the back or something like that. So just looking at these two pronouns, the near and the remote, kind of gives us the idea that Jesus Himself is indeed talking about things that will be fulfilled quickly, i.e. A.D. 70, and also things that are going to be a little bit longer before they come to fulfillment, and that is in the end times. Let me show you these. Now, unless context directly tells us to understand them in another way, then we understand them in the true nature of these pronouns which are near and remote. So watch with me in case you didn't believe me. Check out verse number 4. You may want to underline these as we walk, walk through it. Verse number 4, tell us when these things will happen. Now look with me in uh, verse number 8. Jesus says, these things are merely the beginning. Uh, let your eye fall on down. Look in verse number 17. Here we go now. Those days. Verse number 19. Those days. Verse number 20. Those days. And we could walk through this entire chapter and we could see these and those used in juxtaposition. Indicating the true nature of biblical prophecy near and remote. Two mountain peaks upon which the expositor or the reader must focus simultaneously if he's going to understand what's being taught. So let's do that. I want to speak to you today on this subject. Scriptural truth about end times. Because Lord knows there's been enough non-biblical stuff postulated out there about end times. And most all of it is wrong. Hey, as a matter of fact, nobody has been wrong more than the, than the cult group Jehovah's Witnesses. They have been wrong so much about this stuff until I don't see how anybody with one eye and half a brain can give them any credence or credibility at all. Because every time they're wrong, they just say, well, we may have misfigured, and they'll go to figuring again. Well, dude, after you've misfigured six times, you're not going to get another shot with me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, come on, even a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. They're not even a blind hog. They've not found the first acorn. So here we go. Scriptural truth concerning end times. 
And I've got to reduce this down, you understand, because, man, we could stay here forever. This is what's known as the little apocalypse. Uh, uh, There's so many of my friends who are indeed Bible scholars. I've heard some of them say, man, I wish Matthew 24 and Mark 13 weren't even in the Gospels. It would be so much easier to get our mind around if it weren't for those two chapters. They are confusing, but let's try to make sense out of it in two brief statements today as we pin everything we're going to say on these two statements. Number one, scriptural truth about the end times. Scripture concludes that there will be a complete failure of human institutions. A complete failure of human institutions. Now, I want you to see this as we walk through this. Notice all of the things here that Jesus says basically is going to fail. Notice with me, the the first one is in verse 1 and 2. And it has to do with the temple and we can kind of expand that out and generalize it and say this. There is going to be a failure of empty buildings. And by empty buildings, let me explain that a little more. Empty church buildings, all right? And you do understand that the church is not just a human institution. The church is a human divine organism. But get this, if God is no longer involved in it, she's simply human. Are you with me? Hey guys, listen to me. The best commodity we have, the most valuable element that Grace Church possesses is not our resources, but it's the presence of God who meets with us when we are here worshiping Him. You take God out of this and we're nothing more than a Christian book club. Huh? And who needs any more of that? But look, we're talking about human institutions and human institutions will fail. Let me show you why it was that the temple ultimately failed. It's hidden right here in these verses. Check this out. Look what the Bible says in verse verse 1 of chapter 13. As He, that is Jesus, was going out of the temple. He left it. And friend, this is a dramatic, acted out parable of what the prophet Ezekiel prophesied so many years ago when the glory of God departed from the temple. So that puts chills on this preacher's arms. God forbid that the presence of God ever withdraws from Grace Church. May Jesus never feel that we're a lost cause and He have to walk out on us. May it never be said about Jesus like it was about Elvis. You remember those old things you say, Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. Good God, may it never be said that Jesus has left the building. But now let me show you how much Jesus cares about buildings, huh? Do you get the idea that Jesus doesn't care as much about buildings as Baptists do? And maybe Peter, James, and John had a Baptist mentality. Matter of fact, I know they did. Look what they said to him. They said, and you know, they're wanting a pat on the back for this, by the way. Check it out. They said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now hear me. This was one of the the seven marvels of the ancient world. There are historical accounts given to us that say this thing was so so white and so laced with gold and so ornate that that when the midday Palestinian sun was shining on it, it was nearly blinding to look directly at it. 
I mean, we're talking about a magnificent building. It was the pride of every good Jewish boy and girl. And here, Andrew and the disciples kind of expressed that sentiment when they coming out of it, walking out of it with Jesus and say, Man, what a beautiful building. Hey, I don't care how beautiful is it. If Jesus is not in it, it's worthless. And it's nothing more than a heap of rubbish and stones. So Jesus, Jesus shocked them as He often did. He said, and He just kind of dropped a bomb on it and let them think about it. He said, I tell you, there's not a stone that you're looking at that won't be torn down. Now guys, I don't want to go to seed on this, but I am. Can I? Because you understand that part of the philosophy of Grace Church is that we are, hear me, we are not going to build God one more building. Now there are some things I'm not sure of, but I'm pretty sure of this. I'm pretty sure that God doesn't need one more multi-million dollar building in the United States of America. Huh? I mean, my goodness. Would you just stop and think how much money there is vested in church buildings and just the state of Florida? Let's not talk about the entire nation because it would blow our mind. I'm telling you, there's enough money sunk in there that we could have done got the gospel around this world four or five hundred times if it weren't for the fact that we were sitting on it every Sunday morning. Huh? I mean, come on. Why does the church want to prioritize something that's ultimately going to be eaten by rust and moss if in persecution it's not totally destroyed? That's what it's going to be. And so listen, Grace Church could care less about building. We'll meet in a mud hut if that's what it takes. Because get me, we are going to meet and worship our God, but we don't have to have a, a, an elaborate complex and put God's money in that when it ought to be going to... Hey, you know, I just got a feeling one day the Lord's going to look at a lot of us and say, dang, that's a nice building, but your community went to hell. You know... The world went to hell. But you dang sure got a pretty building. Congratulations. And by the way, look at it over there in a heap of ruins right now. What good is it doing anybody? So again, hear me, Grace Church. We are not going to be one of those facility-driven, building-focused Baptist churches. We're not going to be. Because all that's just going to come to nothing one day. Hear me. When we were fleshing this thing out, and I can still show you on my phone, I was sitting in an airport in, in Brazil somewhere with a layover one day, fleshing out my dream. If I ever got to be a part of a church plant, what I'd want it to be. And I still got it. I, I, I'm going to print it one day. And one of the things in there was, we want this church to be able to survive in all climates in both economic repressed times, spiritually repressed, even in times of persecution. Now, you know what? We, we proved that we're on the right track because when COVID decimated most churches, guess what it did to grace? We didn't miss a beat. We're not going to be one of those facility-driven, facility-focused churches. Because look, when persecution comes, notice I said when, not if. Did you know when persecution comes, a church building is going to be useless? Because if you gathered all up under a big white steeple at a First Baptist church building somewhere, 
All they got to do is they know where you at, Jerry. It's like hunting quail in a pen. You don't have to have a good bird dog with a good note. They go right there in that box. <laughs> just go pull their heads off. You didn't go shoot them, just reach in and pull their heads off. Huh? Kind of like a comedian I heard. He said his mama gave him one of them little safes. You know them little safes that you can carry around like a briefcase? <laughs> she said, son, I got you something for your valuables. He said, well, thank you, mama. You just made it, put it in a nice suitcase for the thieves to tote off. Everything I got in one swipe. He said, that's what church buildings are going to be in these days. If you're gathered there, I can promise you, you won't find believers in a church building when the persecution begins. That's where they're going to be. They're going to be underground where the church started. And Lord have mercy, they're going to be looking out there saying, I wish we'd have saved about $27 million of that building over there for hard times like we're in right now. Huh? Now how can you tell when you've become facility driven and, 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 and you're facility focused? Well, a couple ways. Number one, when you are a facility focused church, just like these boys, you're proud of your building. You ever been, I, 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 I did a revival not long ago at a place, and son, Heather and I weren't there 10 minutes, and we found out what their God was. You know what I'm saying? Huh? Huh? Are you with me? Because everybody we talked to just had to tell us how proud they were of their building and brag on it and show us another facet of it. And then here's another way you can know. When the building starts becoming God, like the temple did for these guys back then, and Jesus says, no, it's going to all be a heap of rubbish one day. It's not something for you to be congratulated over. You begin to, to have this long list of rules of what you can do. What you can do, what you can bring in, how you dress, what you can drink, what you can eat in that sacred building that they have. You know, here at Grace, we've only got one rule, basically. One rule. You come in here dressed however you want to come. You come in here eating whatever you want. Only thing is, Jason, if you bring gumbo, you got to bring enough for me. And we'll stop meat right in the middle of service. Huh? Here's one rule at Grace Church. Try as hard as you can. Whatever you do, just don't set it on fire, all right? <laughs> Anything else you want to do, short of lighting a fire in here on Sunday morning, you knock yourself out. It's all right. This building is not our God. Here's another way you can tell when you're facility driven. Everything the church does is centered right there in that building. Everything. One of our students whom we sent out is on staff at a rather large, prominent type of church. And he's got our DNA. So he gets over there and he begins to see all the stuff that they can do. And he begins to talk about grace groups and having folk meet. And, and, and everybody that he mentioned that to, he said, gave him the same response. He said, scratch your head and say, why would we want to meet in homes? We just finished a $10 million building to meet in. See what I'm saying? Everything revolves around the church and you protect it because it becomes your God. Heather and I were in a little town in Alabama. Shall remain unnamed. Not long ago because there was this big festival taking place. Everybody within two or three counties was coming to that little old bitty town for this festival. So Heather and I rode to check it out and we got up there and look, you couldn't find a place to park anywhere, Jerry. There were folk, there were folk who came for miles. People were parking in any space they could possibly, they could possibly find a park. And we go right down Main Street, 
the first Baptist church is there. And on their marquee out front, here's what it said. It said, God at work, come and see. They had an acre of paved parking lot and another couple acres of ornate yard out there that was pristine. They had, I lie to you not, they had traffic barricades blocking the entrance and tape around their property. And son, I was just downright offended. I said, no wonder we can't get a hearing because folk think that's what the church is. Dear God, me and Heather were sitting looking at people walk by and trying to find places to park. And we said, if that was us, we'd throw that thing open. We'd have a parking lot tenants out there. We'd have a committee giving water away. We'd do everything we could to minister to everybody who came to that festival that day. And all they could think about is we don't want you messing up our building and our parking lot. Good God. Hear me. And I told you I didn't want to go to seed on my first point. I did. <laughs> there are going to be a failure of human institutions in the end times. And human by human institutions, I mean there's going to be a lot of church buildings where Jesus ain't. Are you following me? Where Jesus ain't that are turned into big piles of trash heap. Grace Church, we're not going there, are we? We're not going there. All right, I got to run. Or I ain't gonna, man, I'm not going to get through any of this, Jamie. Here we go. Complete failure of human institutions. Number next, not only will there be a failure of empty buildings, empty church buildings where Jesus is not because He's already left. Let me just, I ain't through. <laughs> Do you know of any church, please don't shout out names, But have you ever encountered a church like this that has Ichabod written on it? Because that's what we're talking about. Ichabod, the glory has departed. God's moved on. And it's nothing more than a human institution. Grace Church, listen to me. Be on your guard. Because it could very well happen to us. If we get the focus on the wrong thing. All right, number next. I'm through now, finally. There'll be a failure of empty buildings. There's going to be also a failure of earthly bloodlines. Earthly bloodlines. Check this out. Look with me in, uh, in, in verse number 12 and 13. Brother will betray brother to death. A father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name's sake. You know, don't get me wrong. Earthly family is very important, is it not? It is. But can I say to you, it's not ultimate. And you know, one of the number one reasons I get from people when I talk to them about being involved in a local church, here's what they say. Well, you know, we work six days a week and Sunday is our family day. And can I say to you that one day your family's going to betray you? One day, the most valuable thing that you are going to have is going to be your church family. Watch me. Your church family. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. Uh, How many of us have a stronger connection and more intimacy with our spiritual family than we do with our biological family? See what I'm saying? 
So there is going to be a breakdown one day. Now, I, I, yeah, family is important, but hear me, not ultimate. Here's what I say to folk that say, family is our church. I mean, is a, a Sunday is our family day. Well, then bring your entire family to church with you. Huh? I mean, that's the way to solve that problem. How valuable is Grace Church to you? One day, the most valuable thing that you have is going to be your church family. They're going to be the only ones that understand you. They're going to be the only ones who are in this with you. They're going to be the only ones that can help you. And we're going to be very much interdependent upon one another. And it's the days that Jesus is talking about right here. It's going to be a breakdown of earthly bloodlines. Number next, not only is there going to be a failure of empty buildings and of earthly bloodlines, but I think this text bears out also that there are going to be ethnic battles. Watch this. Look with me in verse number 8. You see what he says here? He says, For nation will rise up against nation. Now you see the word nation there? Here it is. Here's, here's what it is in the original language. E-T-H-N-O-S. Ethnos. You see what he's talking about here is ethnicities. So if we translated that very literally, it would be one ethnic group is going to rise up against another ethnic group. He's not talking about political entities here. He's talking about ethnicities. Now, you just stop with me for a little while. I don't want to get in trouble. John, you keep me from getting in trouble, all right? But I had one of my international friends called me from his home country on WhatsApp because that's the platform in which missionaries communicate, you understand. He called me on WhatsApp just a couple weeks ago and here was his question. He said, Pastor Richie, is the United States headed towards a race war? And I said, Brother, if we continue to listen to the race mongerers, if we continue to listen to the liberal media, if we continue to embrace cancel culture, yes sir, we are. And I'm convinced that's what some of them are trying to, trying to make happen. Ethnicity is going to rise up against ethnicity. It shouldn't be a shock to us. That's what Jesus said right here in verse 8 of Mark chapter 13 when He's talking about in times. And it's not just going to be uh, 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 one ethnic group against another. It's going to be all of them against one another, against each other. It's going to be all of them fighting. And listen to this. Listen. The more liberal legislation tries to break down differences between ethnicities and force them together, the more this is going to escalate. Because hear me, and I'm so sick of being called a racist. I'm not, dear God, I've given the biggest part of my life to reaching former African slaves in the jungle of Brazil with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What have you done that's calling me a racist? Huh? But hear me, I know this ethnic problem cannot be cured by legislation. It can only be cured by salvation. That's why the Bible says in Revelation that there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 
Oh, I, I, I firmly believe we're going to maintain our ethnic identity in heaven based on passages like that. But there's going to be perfect harmony just like God intended. But son, it's not going to happen until we get there, Pastor Tony. As you talked about this morning. So yeah, in the end time there's going to be a failure of human institutions. We see here empty buildings going down. We see here earthly bloodlines collapsing and, and betraying one another to death. And we also see ethnic battles taking place. Now, let me show you. In case you you don't believe that, Jesus wasn't being redundant here when He said nation against nation. He said ethnos against ethnos. And then He said kingdom against kingdom. So what is He talking about here? I think here He's talking about established boundaries are going to break down. They're going to break down. He's talking about kingdoms. Now He is talking about geopolitical entities. So now he's talking more about what we would consider to be nations and what we would consider to be uh, uh, territories and things of that nature. So boundaries are going to break down. I think two ways boundaries are going to break down. Number one, political boundaries are going to break down. Huh? National boundaries are going to break down. It's no coincidence that one of the hottest political issues on the agenda right now in the United States of America has to do with what? Borders. You're exactly right with boundaries and borders. And it's no coincidence that around the world we're seeing those things ignored. As a matter of fact, there are political parties who want to do away with all boundaries. And you know, the Bible has a lot to say about boundaries and borders. Just read the Old Testament. But it's no coincidence today that we're seeing encroachment globally. Do you know as we speak, Russia and Putin have their eye on the Ukraine. And they're salivating, thinking how they can go in and take it. Did you know that China right now is maneuvering in order to take over Taiwan? Did you know that? And when they do, the entire globe is going to feel the ramifications of these things. Should we be surprised? Heck no. Jesus told us about it in Mark chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 24. So, scriptural truth about end times. Number one, a complete failure of human institutions. Number two, there will be a cosmic focus on heaven's elect. <laughs> on heaven's elect. Have you noticed that through here? And, 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 and the, when I say cosmic, I mean not just people on this earth, but the spiritual realm is going to be focused on God's people during this time. So you're going to be the center of attention, bud. <laughs> Did you know that? You are. Cosmic focus upon the elect. So let me run through this real quick. I felt I'd be amiss if I didn't let this passage define for us what it means by the elect. So, so notice, and again, Jesus highlights that in the end of this passage, but He implies it throughout. So let me first tell you who the elect are according to this passage. Look with me in verse number 11. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you're going to say. The elect, here we go. The elect have no concern for personal welfare. No concern for personal welfare. You know how I know that? Because Jesus didn't even speak to it. If folk would have been worried about what they were going to wear, He would have spoke to it and did speak to it. If He would have been worried about, they would have been worried about what they were going to eat. He would have and did speak to it in other places. But what are the elect concerned about in these times? Not their personal welfare. 
Not at all. God hasten the day when the children of God are no longer concerned about number one. Huh? God hasten the day when I make decisions not based on how it affects me and not concerned for personal welfare. What are they consumed with? Well, they're not concerned with personal welfare because Jesus didn't speak to it. Jesus said, here's what I, here's what, here's, here was their concern. Their concern was not their welfare, but their concern was what they were going to say. Isn't that amazing? So, the elect have no concern for personal welfare. The elect are consumed with their personal work. Do you know you're going to have some personal work to accomplish in this time? Do you know you have personal work right now? And can I say to you that, you know, I'm kind of a student of effective ministry and Christian leaders. And you know, one of the characteristics of an effective Christian leader is this. They view their work as a personal assignment given to them directly by Jesus Christ. And it is. It is. When you look at the Great Commission, who's given authority for the Great Commission and responsibility and privilege for the Great Commission? Who is? And everybody says, well, the church. No, you are. It's us. It's a personal assignment. And the elect in this time are looking at this as a personal job given to them expressly by the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is their personal job? Number one, Christ honoring evangelism. Check this out. Be on guard, verse number 9 says, for they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in synagogues and you will stand before governors for my name's sake. But look what he says. He says, when they arrest you, don't worry about what you're going to say, but whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. Christ honoring evangelism. You know how, is all evangelism Christ honoring? No. Some of it's pretty manipulative, to be honest with you. But let me tell you how I know it's Christ honoring. Because it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 16 about the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, For He will not speak of Himself, but He will glorify Me. So when the Holy Spirit gives you what to say when you stand before governors and kings, as He said, as a testimony to them, make no mistake about it, it's Christ honoring evangelism. Those folk would not have heard if it were not for the fact that they arrested you and now here you are a nobody standing before potentates just like the Apostle Paul and what you are going to say is given to you in that hour. Hey, listen to me. This is not a verse for lazy preachers to claim as a reason for them not to prepare to preach on Sunday. That's not what it's about. It's about when you're arrested and hauled before the court. I'm not concerned about them killing me. I'm more concerned about my testimony for Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, don't you worry about it, I got you. Hey, have you ever been in a situation before where something was going on and, and you knew you needed to say something and you said something and after you said it you thought, my gosh, where'd that come from? Huh? You ever said, guess where it came from? That's what he does. That's what he specializes in. And giving you the words in those critical... This is not talking about preaching. I didn't wait till I got here this morning. Study to show yourself approved, huh? A workman, not ashamed. But yeah, 
you know what I'm saying. Well, that's going to be the order of the day. The Spirit of God is going to be speaking through us and it's going to be Christ-honoring evangelism. On the other hand, you ever been in a situation and you said something and after you said it, you thought, my God, that was dumb. Where'd that come from? Well, that was all you, Daddy. <laughs> that was all you. <laughs> so look, they're concerned, they're consumed with their personal work of Christ-honoring evangelism. Number two, kingdom expansion. Guys, how is it that in these times when people are being betrayed unto death, Buildings are being torn down. Systems are collapsing. The believers in that generation, whoever it is, whether it's us or the generation to follow, they are consumed with Christ-honoring evangelism and kingdom expansion. And yet we sitting here in the time of prosperity and peace can't do it. I don't understand what's going on, but notice, notice how they're consumed with kingdom expansion. But the gospel must first. You see that word must? Underline it. It is that little three-letter Greek word that is a divine imperative. It must. There is no other way. God would be unjust in these days to judge a nation who did not have a gospel witness firmly established in her midst. That's why I say to Ryan and Morgan, God bless you. Preach the gospel in Turkey. Establish a witness there. That's why I say to Dane and Cheryl and, and Matthew and Kristen, God bless you. Establish a Christian witness among the Quilombolas of Brazil because this must first happen. It's got to. And in that day, we're going to be consumed with kingdom expansion. Number next, their personal work is not only Christ, honor, evangelism, and kingdom expansion, but constant endurance. You see, we're just defining who the elect are. What makes the elect of that day any different from the elect of this day? And the answer should be nothing. But check it out. Look what it is that Jesus says in verse 13. You'll be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures... Say it with me. The one who endures... The one who endures to the end will be saved. Listen here. Here's the here's way we interpret this today. But the one who starts out strong but gets his feelings hurt and drops out will be saved. That's contemporary theology in Bonifay, Florida. Did you know that? The one who starts out on the right track but fizzles after the first few weeks, they're going to be alright. Is that what the Word says? Do you understand one of the hallmark characteristics of the elect, the people of God, those who've been born again, is that you don't quit. I don't care what happens to you. You don't quit. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Look, he's not talking about justification. Nobody's justified because they have stick-to-itiveness in their bones. The ability to pull themselves up by their bootstrap. No, that would be works theology. He's not talking about justification. By the way, you know that word saved has about five different meanings in the Greek New Testament. And if you've only got one meaning in your dictionary, certainly you're going to get it wrong sometimes. This is not justification. It's probably glorification. The one who endures to the end, the one who has already been justified... He endures because on the basis of His justification. But the one who's been justified will be glorified. 
Does that ring true? Does that sound familiar? Anybody ever say anything like that? You better believe exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter number 8. So look, the elect here have constant endurance. You can throw whatever you want to at them. And buddy, they're not going to stop. So let me stop and ask you a question. What did it take to get you stopped today? To get you to throw in the towel and say, I'm no longer participating with the community of faith in Bonifay, Florida at Grace Church. What, what would it get you? And hear me. If the things that cause us to stop today would cause them to stop, then the world would be left without witness. Jesus said, He who endures to the end shall be saved. i got to hurry. Here we go. The elect. There's a cosmic focus on the elect. We've identified the elect. Now what does it say about the elect? Well, it says everything on earth will be against us. The elect. Everything on earth will be against us. Let me just name them for you because i got to hurry. Family's going to be against you, verse 12 and 13. The environment is going to be against you. Have you ever thought about the, the weather being your enemy? Earthquakes, floods, famines. When was the last time you prayed that it don't happen in winter? <laughs> we don't pray that. You see what I'm saying? This is probably one of those elements that was historically fulfilled. I mean, how many of you ladies have prayed, God, don't let it happen while I'm pregnant? That's what he says here, isn't it? He says, woe to those who are with child, those who are pregnant, and those who have toddlers. It's going to be bad. The environment was even against them. And guess what? It's going to be in the future as we look at this dual focus of these two mountain peaks again. The environment can be against us. The economy can be against us. We know from the book of Revelation that you're not going to be able to buy or sell. A famine may not be environmentally caused. It may be economically caused. Look at the supply chain issues we're having today. I'm so grateful to God that i got a collard green patch in my backyard. Because <laughs> if my mixed giblets don't get here from China, I'm okay. <laughs> Are you with me? Family's going to be against us. Environment's going to be against us. The economy's going to be against us. And number one, the devil's going to be against you. Spiritual implications. There's prophets and false prophets and they're even fighting one another. The, the, the language here indicates, no, I, I, in contradistinction to him who's claiming to be Christ. He's not Christ, I'm Christ. going to be a whole lot of stuff going on like that. Number next, and i got to close it out. Everything on earth will be against us, but here's the good part. Everything in heaven will be for you. <laughs> and get this, if God be for us, Somebody finish it. Who can be against? It doesn't matter if your family's against you, if the weather's against you, if the economy's against you. Stack everything you want up against me and I'll stand right here with Jesus. Amen. Huh? And that's what this text indicates. N notice what God does on behalf of His people. Number one, God supplies our words. Verse number 11 again. Don't worry about what you're going to say. It's almost going to be like every time you open your mouth, God speaks through you. Wow. Wow. Now son, listen, I'm in the preaching business. I know how much study it takes to stand up here and do this. It's going to be good when I stand before a governor and I didn't have to do Greek exegesis, huh? <laughs> Just open my mouth and the Spirit speaks. God supplies our words. Number two, 
God shortens the days. Check this out. I'm getting in new ground. So let me read verse number 19. For those days, there's that distant pronoun, will be a time of great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of time, which God created until now and never will. Get this, unless the Lord had shortened those days. There's a great truth right here. You see that word shortened? It's in the past tense. But yet it hasn't happened yet. You know what that tells me? That tells me God's already set the limit from eternity. God's firmly in control. And you know what? The fact that He has already shortened those days tells me that that's on His calendar. It's, matter of fact, the next great happening on God's save the date calendar is this. But you know what He did? For the sake of the elect, the Bible says. For the sake of the elect. Now friends, I don't want to get in this with you, but you understand if there's one group that's elect, that automatically entails something else. And I'm not even going to say it. But it does. God shortened the days. God speaks of a future event as if it's already happened. And guess what? From eternity where God dwells, it has. And God shortened those days for the sake of the elect. Don't tell me heaven's not for you. God's for you. He supplies your words. He shortened the days. And number next and finally, God has spoken specific instructions. Look what Jesus said in verse 23. But you see to it, you take heed, you be on guard because I've told you everything in advance. You know what he's saying? Do you know what he is saying? He just said, I have given you everything that you need not, not just to survive through this time but to thrive in it spiritually. But to thrive in it. Hey, we've got it right here. This is our lifeline this is the instruction book. This is the how-to which Jesus has given us. You know why one of our foundation beliefs at Grace, one of our foundation strategies is to teach God's Word? Because without it, you don't stand a snowball's chance. You're going to be led astray. You're going to find yourself being duped by the signs and wonders of the false prophets and the Antichrist, all of those things. So here's the thing. If you know the Word, you're not just a gullible believer. If you know the Word, you are equipped come hell and high water because they're both coming. So do you know the Word, Grace Church? Do you know the Word? Have you ever been born again are you one of those people upon whom there's going to be a cosmic focus? The elect, Jesus defines them as those whom God has chosen. If you have, here's what you'll do. Number one, you'll repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ because that's what the elect do. Number two, you'll endure through hell and high water. And number three, you'll devour His Word like it's going out of style. Scriptural truth concerning end time. Thank God He's prepared us. Would you stand please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray for those who are here today, God, that may 